Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 33. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Uh, let me tell you in advance that we won't be able to finish our study of this passage today. Uh, it's too rich, uh, too much to discuss, and it'll be quite a while before we finish it, because for the next two Sundays, I'll be bringing Christmas messages, uh, but uh, keep your notes and uh, try to remember the things that we discover today, and we'll return to this passage in three weeks. You might think, well, it's really odd uh, that during the Christmas season we would address a topic like this, but maybe not as odd as you might think. Because after all, in one of our great Christmas hymns, we sang just a moment ago, truly he taught us to love one another his law is love, and his gospel is peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi. He's showing that he is the messenger of the covenant. He is the one who came to preach the new covenant law, that law that is written on our heart in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, that law that it is our very nature to fulfill as transformed followers of Jesus Christ. And our Lord, the messenger of the covenant, said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. On December the 14th of 2014, two uniformed NYPD officers, Wenjian Liu and Rafael Ramos, were sitting in their patrol car, carrying on a pleasant conversation when they were shot point blank in the head by lone gunman Ismail Brinsley. We would later discover that the motive for these killings was revenge. Revenge for the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Garner that are known to us all. Now the fact is, neither of these police officers was involved in any way with the deaths of Michael Brown or Eric Garner, but that didn't matter to the murderer on this day. In fact, the, these two officers had an outstanding, stellar record. Lou was a devout Christian who was actually in training for the police chaplaincy. He had just married. Ramos was a veteran police officer without any record of police brutality. They were targeted simply because they were wearing the blue uniform. New York Post article had the headline, Gunman Executes Two NYPD Cops in Garner 
revenge. And that wasn't a figment of the journalist's imagination. They gleaned all of that information from the shooter's Instagram account that was filled with hateful, violent, anti-police rhetoric. For example, on his Instagram page, he said, quote, I'm putting wings on pigs today. He added, they take one of ours, let's take two of theirs. His post continued, this may be my final post, hashtag kill the police. This is the ugly face of revenge. Revenge is never just. As in this case, it often harms those who are completely innocent and in every way unrelated to whatever offense we think we have endured. It always exacts a greater punishment than is right and is fair. But revenge has become something that we celebrate in our culture. I used to know a Baptist church leader who would often brag when somebody offended him, watch out, I don't get mad, I get even as if revenge was something to be proud of. Jesus' words could not be more timely. The Lord Jesus forbids all acts of vengeance. He forbids all acts of retaliation. And he commands that his disciples display grace toward others even when they are mistreated. Now, this is a passage that is terribly misunderstood, and so it deserves to be examined in considerable detail. First of all, we need to note that Christ here respects and affirms the authority of the Old Testament law. He is not contradicting it in any way. He is simply challenging popular misinterpretations of the law that distort its original meaning. There are many interpreters who believe that the Old Testament statement, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, actually approves acts of vengeance. And since the Lord Jesus condemns all acts of vengeance here, they see the Lord Jesus as contradicting the Old Testament law. Uh, we should know better than that because Jesus has introduced the Sermon on the Mount with the statement, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And the fact is, those who see Jesus as contradicting the Old Testament law here actually misinterpret the Old Testament law in the very same way that many of the ancient rabbis did. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, known as the law of retribution or the lex telionis, appears three times in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, 20, Deuteronomy 19, 21. And every one of those examples of the law of retribution refers to the authority of the courts in administering justice, not individuals seeking personal vengeance. For example, Exodus 20, 22 through 25 is describing the penalty for accidental personal injury. 
And it states that fines had to be paid for personal injuries, quote, according to the judicial assessment. That is according to the decision made by the court. And then it lays down the principle that should guide the court in making decisions. And that principle is the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life. Here's the point. The Lex Talionis was a guide to the courts in their judgments. It was not justification for personal acts of vengeance. We see the same thing in Leviticus 24.20. The law has just described the crime of blasphemy and prescribed the penalty for that crime. And it has gone on to explain that, quote, the whole community... Not an individual, not a vigilante. The whole community is to carry out the sentence for the crime. And then it lays down the lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And once again, it's clear that the principle is to guide the court and the community as a whole in the administering of justice, not an excuse for personal vengeance. And finally, we see the same thing in Deuteronomy 19.21. There, the law of retribution is prescribed as the penalty for false witnesses who lie under oath during a trial and an innocent person is condemned because of their false testimony. And the law said that that false witness should suffer whatever penalty the falsely accused suffered. If their false testimony meant that the innocent person lost their hand, their foot, their eye, their life, then the false witness should also lose their hand, their foot, their eye, their life. The law said you must not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. But here's the point. The law of retribution was intended to prevent ancient courts from on the one hand being unduly harsh in its sentences. For example, you don't cut off the arm of a beggar for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. But on the other hand, to prevent the court from being unduly lenient in its administration of justice, you don't give a murderer a mere slap on the wrist. The sentence was to be appropriate for the crime. And knowledge that the perpetrator would suffer to the same degree he caused his victims to suffer would be a powerful deterrent to crime. But there's no evidence that Jesus is contradicting the Old Testament law when he tells his disciples not to seek vengeance, not to be engaged in retaliation, the lex talionis was never intended to excuse vengeance or acts of retaliation. As a matter of fact, the very same Old Testament law that said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and so forth also said in Leviticus 19.18, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
No, the Old Testament law doesn't excuse acts of personal vengeance. It is very clear in condemning and prohibiting acts of vengeance. Thus, when Christ says, do not retaliate against an evildoer, he is not contradicting the Old Testament law in any way. Now, it might appear that he is, partly because of unclear English translations. Many of our English translations, like the ESV that we read here in our services at Christ Baptist, says, quote, do not resist the one who is evil. I think that's a confusing translation because it could imply that Christians are just supposed to sit back with their arms folded while evil runs rampant. We have no right for self-defense. We have no right to defend the innocent and so forth. And that is not what Jesus is saying. The word that is translated as resist is better translated as retaliate or seek vengeance against. We should resist evil and we should resist evildoers. The old saying is correct, evil prevails when good men do nothing. We have a responsibility to stand for what is right and even fight for what is right. Christ is not prohibiting us from resisting evil or resisting evildoers, but he is prohibiting us from acts of revenge, even against those who have done evil to us. And Christ is going to go on to say, revenge can take many different forms. It could be an act of violence. Somebody attacks you and you attack them back and you attack them back far worse because of your anger and your bitterness. But it doesn't even have to be a violent act. We can seek vengeance against others by battling them in court when they have a, a right to something and we rob them of their rights because of our dislike for them. Or we can seek vengeance by refusing to serve them when they have needs or by refusing to meet their needs in a time of crisis. Christ is gonna give four different examples of ways we might seek vengeance and how each one is contrary to his will and plan. But at the bottom line, Christ's ethical principle is that we need to relate to those who have treated us wrongly like the heavenly father relates to those who sin against him. Notice that he says, do not seek vengeance against the evildoer. Uh, the evildoer is going to be mentioned again a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 44. Christ says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So he makes his son, because he makes his son rise on the one who does evil and on the one who does good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. And the point that Christ is making is the heavenly father 
shows love and mercy even to his enemies, even to the wicked, even to those who do evil. He withholds his wrath until the day of judgment. And he, in fact, blesses the evil and the wicked here and now by causing his sun to shine and warm the soil and causing the rain to fall and water the soil that will bless the crops and feed the families, even of those who are evil and wicked. And and Christ's point is, if you are sons and daughters of the heavenly father, then you should relate to evildoers like the heavenly father does with grace and mercy and kindness. And so he says, even when people have treated you badly, you don't lash out. You don't prevent them from having what they are legally due. You don't refuse to serve them. You don't withhold generosity in their time of need. You don't relate to the evildoer like other people relate to an evildoer. You relate to the one who has done evil to you like the heavenly father relates to those who have done evil against him. And then Christ goes on to give his first example. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, it's important that we pay attention to the details here. First of all, Christ speaks of a slap on the right cheek. Uh, Most first century Jews were right-handed. In fact, they refrained from using the left hand for a lot of different purposes. You might remember in our study a few weeks ago when we looked at grounds for divorce in the Mishnah, that one of the grounds for divorce was a wife being ambidextrous. If she had a tendency of using both hands and not just the right hand, end of the marital covenant as far as many of the rabbis were concerned. First century Jews were very conscientious about preference to the right hand for a number of different reasons. And since first century Jews were right-handed and intentionally so, a slap on the right cheek is going to be a backhanded slap, not a slap with the open palm. Why is that significant? It's significant because that is the kind of slap that is most painful. Backhanded slap hurts a whole lot more than a slap with the open palm. And in first century Jewish law, it was most insulting. The rabbis actually taught that if you gave somebody a backhanded slap, it was double the fine than if you had just slapped them with the open palm. And then they explained the rationale for that higher fine. They said, everything is in accord with a person's honor. And what they meant by that is there's something about the backhanded slap that is particularly demeaning and insulting to a person's honor. Christ says, if somebody gives you that backhanded slap on the right cheek, then turn to them the other also, which means you're actually going to permit them to now slap you with the open palm. But do you notice something about the way 
the conflict is growing. Because of the disciples' refusal to lash back, the conflict is diminishing. A more insulting and painful blow is now leading to a lighter and less insulting blow. The peaceful response of the Christian disciple is bringing the conflict to an end. Now, the Lord Jesus is the perfect example of this kind of response to the offenses of others. The Lord Jesus is mocked, he is spat upon, he is beaten with sticks, slapped, scourged, nailed to a cross, and he endures all of this without retaliation and even with forgiveness on his lips. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And never is a disciple more like the Lord Jesus when they respond to acts of evil against them with the same patience and kindness. But having said that, several important qualifications must be made. Number one. Notice that Jesus' command is prohibiting acts of revenge inspired by anger and resentment, a desire to hurt somebody back, not out of self-defense or desire to protect others from serious harm. Did you know that even though the Lord Jesus did suffer in his crucifixion all kinds of abuse without retaliation. He didn't call upon those 12 legions of angels that he could have to wipe the Roman troops out and the people of Jerusalem, that angry mob calling for his crucifixion. On the other hand, he did protest the injustice of the abuse. In John 18, 22 through 23, Rather than simply suffering silently, Jesus protests the injustice of the beating when the high priest orders Christ to be struck. We sometimes forget that. We see Christ as just meek and mild, just sitting back, taking it all without any protest whatsoever, and that's not biblically accurate. Sometimes we forget that when Jesus was under attack, he practiced some pretty serious evasive action. Uh, he would disappear into the crowd so that he could continue to preach and teach and lead his disciples until the appointed time of his death. We see this in Luke 4, verse 30, John 7, verses 1 and 10, John 10, 39, Mark 9, 30. And so it's not wrong to protest injustice. It's not wrong to seek to evade when others do you harm, but there's more. Not only do we have Jesus' own example, look at Jesus' precise wording here. When Jesus talks about the slap on the right and left cheek, he's talking about something that stinks. He's talking about something that is insulting but it's not likely to cause any serious injury and it is certainly not life-threatening. 
Now, do you notice how unexpected that is in context? Because Jesus has just been talking about the law of retribution, the lex talionis, which says eye for eye. It's about losing eyes. Tooth for tooth. It's about having your teeth knocked out. Hand for hand, foot for foot, life for life. It's about your very life being taken in a murderous act. And suddenly he shifts from a discussion of loss of life and loss of limb to a mere slap. That change in topic is very important to note. As I'm convinced that if Christ intended to teach full-blown pacifism like some Christian groups teach today, it's never right to take up arms, it's never right to defend yourself and that kind of thing, he wouldn't have gone from eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, the, the lex talionis to just the topic of a slap. Instead, he would have said something like, if somebody gouges out your right eye, offer to them the left eye also, eye for eye. If you were talking about that kind of thing, since he said tooth for tooth, he might have said, if somebody knocks out your molar, offer to them your incisor also. But he didn't say that. He might have said, if somebody chops off your right hand, offer to them the left hand also. He might have said, if someone kills your son, let them kill your daughter also. But he doesn't. The example that he gives here is one of an attack, yes, but will not result in serious injury. It causes only temporary pain and a diminishment of your honor before bystanders is not something that's going to lead to serious injury and certainly not loss of life. And Christ is saying in this particular example, by responding patiently and kindly, by refusing to retaliate, you can watch the conflict de-escalate. Now, what's going to happen if the disciple responds to that backhanded slap like most people would with now a bare-fisted punch to the nose? He responds more harshly, and then the other person is going to respond in kind, and what's going to happen? The conflict's going to get worse and worse and worse until somebody is very seriously injured and maybe even killed. That Christ says, if you respond to this relatively minor attack with patience and mercy and grace, you may well save your own life and the life of another. And you can display the love and patience of your heavenly Father in the process. My point is, Christ is calling upon us to show self-restraint Refuse to retaliate, refuse to seek revenge, and that will diffuse the conflict so that if there is another blow, it will be milder than the first, not more severe than the first. Notice this, too. 
There are two different tenses that are used with imperatives in Greek. There's a present imperative that means to do something and keep on doing it again and again and again habitually. But then you can use the aorist imperative, and that just means do it with no implication that it's to be repeated again and again. And here's my point. Christ here uses the aorist imperative. He says, turn the other cheek. But he doesn't use that present progressive that means do it again and again and again. So somebody is slapping you back and forth, backhand, open palm, backhand, open palm, backhand, open palm. He's talking about a graceful response that may cause the conflict to de-escalate that shows patience and grace, but at the same time, one that knows limits. And we see that through, throughout Jesus' examples. He says, if somebody's suing you for your inner garment, give them the outer garment also. We'll talk about that more in a few weeks. And sometimes we act as if that meant we should give them everything. But Christ didn't say, give them your house, give them your farm, give them all your farm equipment, give them all your beast of burdens. Yes, what he asks of us is radical, and it is challenging, but it is not insane. We see the same thing with the next example. Christ says, if that Roman soldier compels you to carry his pack for one mile, carry it for two. But he didn't say a hundred miles. He didn't say a thousand miles. This is a display of grace and mercy and patience, but it is not one that defies all reason. And the point that Christ is making is that we should avoid pursuing vengeance at all costs, but that does not mean that we have no right or responsibility to defend ourselves or to defend others. And I might add, The principles of love and justice and other explicit teachings of Scripture require further qualifications. I know some people who think that since we're commanded here to turn the other cheek, you should not prosecute someone who commits a serious crime against you. Jesus is teaching no such thing. Although... He is arguing against the abuse of the lex talionis in which eye for eye, tooth for tooth is used to excuse acts of personal vengeance because he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, because he came to fulfill them, he is at the same time affirming the proper use of the lex talionis. Which means according to Old Testament legal principle, if someone maims a person and lops off their hand, they should forfeit theirs. If someone takes someone else's life, they should forfeit their own. Jesus is not teaching contrary to Old Testament principles of justice. He affirms those principles of justice, but instead... He is arguing against the abuse of these principles to justify those who long for a vendetta. It is right and good 
to prosecute under law those who have harmed you. This serves for the good of society at large. Because if you don't prosecute someone who has committed a crime against you, they go scot-free, what is likely to happen? They'll find another victim and another victim and another victim. And although you may think you're being loving to that criminal by refusing to press charges, you are being very unloving to every future victim who will suffer at their hands. Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 5 show that the most loving response to sinful behavior is to hold a person accountable for that behavior. But at the same time, Christ is clear. These Old Testament principles do not in any way justify acts of vengeance Leviticus 19.18 is clear that you must not seek revenge. You must not bear a grudge. But you must love others even as yourself. When I was in high school, my friends and I were eating lunch at the cafeteria when Mike walked up and sat down at the table, and from the moment he walked up, he was insulting one of my close friends. Uh, this close friend was overweight. He was constantly being bullied by others, and sometimes he would laugh along with others at the jokes that were made about him, but I knew that he was so deeply wounded by the insults that he had seriously contemplated taking his own life. And I felt a responsibility to speak up in his defense. And I said, Mike, you need to stop this. You need to lay off. And I called my friend's name. And he said, of course, as teenage boys are prone to do, and who's, who's going to make me? And I say... If I have to, I will. Before I could blink, Mike had leapt up from his chair. He had raked all of our cafeteria trays off the table into the floor, and he had leaned across the table where I was still seated, and he pummeled my head, just wham, 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 wildly flailing his arms. I hadn't expected that. He caught me completely off guard. Didn't even have an opportunity to get my arms up to protect my face. He didn't stop until he was so tired from pummeling that he fell back in his chair panting for breath. And at this point, my head clears up enough that I stand up, and the minute I stand up, everybody in the cafeteria goes, ooh because they knew what to expect, or at least they thought they did. I had a reputation as a fighter. I wasn't a bully, but I was a fighter. In fact, most of the fights I got in were trying to protect other people from being bullied. Uh, my sister and my younger brothers, uh, girls, or people who were constantly being picked on by others, I just, 
I read way too many Louis L'Amour Western novels to stand back and let that happen. So I would leap in. It had happened recently. Uh, a boy was bullying a girl that I had happened to have a crush on since the fourth grade. So naturally, I stepped in in her defense. He was a big old boy, about a foot taller than me, outweighed me by 50 pounds, and he got my head in the headlock. He was squeezing my head so hard I thought my eyeballs would pop out. And I knew that if I was going to make it out of that without serious injury, I was going to have to turn that wrestling match into a fist fight. And so I ripped my head out from that headlock, nearly losing both ears in the process. I stepped back and took one wild punch. And my bare fist caught him right here in the corner of the eye next to his nose, and it busted his face wide open all the way over to the outside of his cheek. His eye swelled so much that when he went to the emergency room, the doctors expressed concern that he might permanently lose sight in that eye. And to be honest with you, it scared me to death. Many of the fights I was in, I lost. I had no idea that I could actually inflict so much harm with one wild punch with a bare fist. And after that frightening episode, I had resolved to myself, I'm going to do everything I can to walk away from a fight. And so to the complete shock of everybody in the cafeteria, I stood up, I looked Mike right in the eye, and then I turned and walked away. I picked my cafeteria tray up off the floor, I went and turned it in at the window, and I walked out of the cafeteria in complete silence. About the time I got to the door, I was afraid you have just made the biggest mistake of your high school life because from this day forward you are going to be the target of every bully in this school they're going to think that you were a coward they were going to think you were afraid and they are coming after you and i got on the other side of the door and i thought oh man what have i just done my next class was ms deboard's science class and after class ms deboard asked me to stay and to talk to her briefly. She called me to the front once the classroom was empty and she said, Chuck, I was in the cafeteria and I saw what happened. She said, why didn't you hit Mike back? Well, I didn't really want to go into the detail about my last fight and how badly I'd hurt the guy and all that. So I answered like most teenage boys would. I shrugged my shoulders and said, I, I don't know, Ms. DeBoard. She said, well, I think I know. And I have never been prouder of you than I was at that moment. She said, Chuck, do you have any idea why Mike responded to you like he did? And I said, Ms. DeBoard, I don't. He started insulting my friend from the moment he sat down. He, he picked the fight. And she said, I know, I know. She said, if, if I tell you something, will you promise me that you won't tell any of the other students? I said, yes, ma'am. 
She said, have you noticed how Mike lately kind of moves awkwardly, how he shuffles his feet when he walks? Have, have you noticed how when he speaks, his speech is slurred? He said, Mike's mom has been really, really worried about that, and so she's been taking him to doctors and to specialists, and yesterday they finally got their diagnosis. And Mike has just discovered that he has a rare disease. He's going to lose the ability to walk. He's going to lose the ability to speak. And he's going to die a very young man. She said, if Mike is back next school year, he's going to be in a wheelchair. And he'll never get out of one. And he's angry. And he is confused. And unfortunately, he took that anger out on your friend and mainly on you. And she said, in light of what Mike's going through, Chuck, I think he's going to need a friend. And I think you would be a very good one for him. Everything she said about Mike was true. Next school year, he would return in a wheelchair he would barely be able to mumble out anything that you could comprehend. And he would die a very young man. And I'm proud to say he did die as my friend. I am so grateful that although every inclination that day was to stand up and pummel Mike's head like he had just pummeled mine. The Lord had brought me to that place where my arms were pinned to my side and I was able to walk out of the cafeteria in silence. Because it would not have been heroic for me to beat to a pulp someone who was going through what Mike was going through at that moment in his life. If I had responded to that incident like I ordinarily responded to such incidents, it would have been something that I would have regretted for the rest of my life. And the experience that I had that day reminded me of the words of the Lord Jesus. And we are not to retaliate against an evildoer. And if we do, it will only entail more suffering. It will only entail more grief and pain. Uh, we are to respond as Christ insists. It, it is natural, it is normal it is very ordinary to desire revenge after somebody has harmed us. But remember, the Christian life is not a natural way of living. It is a supernatural way of living. It's not an ordinary way of living. It's an extraordinary way of living. The Lord Jesus made it clear from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that we are to have a righteousness that surpasses 
that exceeds that even of the scribes and Pharisees. We are to have the righteousness that results from the transformed heart. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, the messenger of the covenant is revealing to us the Torah of the new covenant that is written on the disciples' heart, compelling us from within to live in a way that is pleasing to the Heavenly Father. I think the most beautiful commentary on Christ's words here that were ever penned are the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 12, when he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, you give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. In the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, the messenger of the covenant taught us what we sang about in that Christmas anthem just a few moments ago. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Why is it the disciples in Jesus Christ can respond to evildoers with patience and kindness and mercy and grace? It is because that is the way the Heavenly Father has related to each of us, and we would have no hope for salvation if he hadn't. All of us are sinners who deserve the judgment of a holy God, but he has withheld his wrath so that we would have opportunity to repent and believe and receive his gracious forgiveness. God, in his great mercy, came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, lived for us the sinless, perfect life that we can't live for ourselves, then went to the cross to be punished for our sins and our place so that we can escape the punishment we rightly deserve. Because of his sacrificial death, he offers us forgiveness that is full and free. He offers to separate our sin as far from us as the east is from the west, to wipe out the record of every wrong we have ever done or said or thought. And that gift of forgiveness can be ours through simple faith in Jesus Christ as God Savior and King. Confess right now that Jesus is the Son of God, God in human form. Acknowledge that He died on the cross for your sins in your place, recognizing that is your only hope for salvation. And surrender to His authority as the King of your life. 
And when you, by faith, trust Jesus as God, Savior, and King, the real gift of Christmas, forgiveness of sin and eternal life will be yours. But receiving that mercy and grace comes with responsibility that we show mercy and grace to others as well. That just as the Heavenly Father withholds His wrath, at least for now, that we withhold our wrath. That just as the Heavenly Father withholds vengeance, we refrain from vengeance. So that others have an opportunity to repent and believe and share the forgiveness that we enjoy. If you've not trusted Jesus as God, Savior, and King, then please confess faith in Him right now. And in a few moments when we sing, I invite you to come forward and tell some of our church leaders about your commitment. We'll tell you what the next steps are in your Christian life. But if you claim to be a son or daughter of God who has received this mercy, commit yourself to share that mercy with others. To not retaliate to not seek revenge, but respond with the grace and mercy of the Heavenly Father. Father, we pray that you will grant your own character to us for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.